Let all our actions, Lord, we pray, be directed by your inspiration and furthered by your help, so that every prayer and work of ours may begin from you, and through you be brought to completion. Amen. Dear friends, this first conference we did this morning, and the exercise which followed it, was an analytical exercise in our meditation on Bethany, taking apart the component parts, the different actors, for a specific reflection on what is particular to each of them. And now this second conference of the morning aims to offer a synthetic reassembly of the various component parts of the Bethany lesson. The more perceptive among you will already have realized that Martha and Mary and Lazarus are emblematic, of course, precisely of those three elements of service, of spirituality, and of friendship, which is um, of the Vincentian vocation. And I'm sure that we can uh, verify the presence in each of our St. Vincent de Paul conferences of Martha's and of Mary's and even of Lazarus's. And it's good if we can recognize the talents and the gifts that are particular to certain members. But sacred scripture seeks to form the whole person, each of us individually, and not just groups of people in general. And so this uh, second conference this morning will seek to examine how each of us individually is also called to find a particular synthesis of these three elements in our Vincentian vocation that are exemplified by the biblical characters. Each of us needs to find the balance between being Martha and being Mary and being Lazarus. Within our Vincentian vocation, each of us needs to figure out how to put together service, spirituality, and friendship. Of course, God has gifted each of us with a dominant personality trait. Some of us are more given to this or that aspect than to others. And it's good in this retreat if you can identify that about yourself and thank the Lord for it. (coughs) But an essential part of coming on retreat is of conversion of life, which means seeking not only the ways that you are, but the ways that you are called to be, the ways in which we can incorporate the other aspects of the Bethany personalities in those areas where in our examination of conscience, maybe we find ourselves lacking. I said when starting this retreat last night that it was my experience of our Cathedral St. Vincent de Paul meeting on Thursday, March the 8th, which planted the seed in my mind for this weekend's reflection. On that occasion, we had quite an animated discussion about two divergent dynamics which need to find a balance in the equilibrium of our Vincentian vocations. The obvious one is the dimension which pushes us outwards. And that's towards the community, towards our neighbor in need, the one to whom we go carrying what we are sharing. And we can call that, you know, a centripetal force. But the less obvious one is the centrifugal force, the dynamic which calls us back together again 
as a community every week. A community that has to minister to its members as well. One that has to be mutually supportive in friendship and in real spirituality. I think our instinct as Vincentians is to favor the one over the other. Is to grant priority to the outward going dimension in the sense of our vocation. We grant it maybe a disproportionate emphasis and role. And perhaps that's why in my own experience of St. Vincent de Paul in different countries, uh, I've seen that the meetings tend to focus on the work in the community. But priority, it's a question of what is prior. Do we give a priority? Now, priority doesn't mean uh, exclusivity. It is a qualitative word. And not a qualitative, it's more of a sequential word. What is prior, by definition, is what comes first. And I think um, if what comes prior means what comes first, then it stands to reason that we should be granting priority to the internal dynamic before we go out into the community to do the work of the society. The work of the society before this, and also, more importantly, is to be able to minister internally to the spiritual and the interpersonal needs of our own Vincentians. Otherwise, they're going to be useless or depleted or exhausted or distorted in the work of the society. There's an old uh, Latin maxim that says... Nemo debet quod non habet. It means you cannot give what you do not have. And if we are a society that dispenses, then we have to be a society first that replenishes from the font. If we fail to do this, then each of us can only give from the store of what each personally possesses, which is a limited store. Now, the work of the church is an extraordinary work if you consider the hospitals and the clinics and the schools and the universities and the orphanages. It's clear that this is a dynamic dispensation. It exceeds what any country of the world does on all the tax money that they steal. So it is extraordinary. that It is supernatural what the church does. It's clear that we are dispensing from a different dynamic than what governments are dispensing from their enormous treasuries. We have a treasury that is greater yet. And you won't see it on the Vatican financial statements because they're broke. And you won't find it on the statements of your parishes too because they're also broke. And by the way, the diocese is probably just as broke. Something is going on here that is supernatural. And we're all a part of it. The logic of the world says, first, you have to save. And the more you save, the more you can spend. And that's the logic of a finite world, of limited resources. But the logic of the kingdom is quite the opposite. It doesn't say you have to save in order to spend. The logic of the kingdom says you have to spend in order to save. And that's because the saver, the one who saves, the savior, is not us not in any of the work we do, the one who saves is the Lord. And so we have to spend. 
But we all find that we come to the end of our tether. We come to the limits of our capacities. And that is when we know that we have given the emphasis to the external and we have failed to give priority to the internal. Because the treasury on which the church draws is supernatural. It's like a well. The more you draw water from it, the more it produces and the fresher the water becomes. Similarly, this well, if we hoard it, if we block it over and we save it, the water becomes stagnant and it dries up. And so from this well, from this inexhaustible treasury, which is the Lord, that is the source of the dispensation of the church's charity, the charity of any Vincentian. And so we have to grant priority to coming to drink again from the fountains of this treasure if we are to dispense. The gospel, incidentally, that we were meditating on March the 8th was that of the subsequent Sunday, uh, March the 11th, in which Jesus tells an important truth to another Pharisee called Nicodemus, who used to visit our Lord secretly by night. He says that people are to have the same relationship to him as they did in Moses' time when he fashioned for them in the desert a bronze serpent on whom they had to gaze. They had to gaze upon this to be saved. In other words, as scripture tells us, they will look upon the one whom they have pierced and be healed. Now there's more than irony involved in the fact that it was a serpent that Moses was instructed to fashion from bronze in the desert as the cure for what ailed the Israelites. Because they had been afflicted by the bites of serpents in the desert. And what this suggests, as one of our Sunday prefaces suggests, is that God has fashioned a remedy for humanity out of humanity itself. When his word took flesh and dwelt amongst us and was crucified for our sins. Man was the cause of our affliction, and it was one of us, a man, who was fashioned and strung up as the remedy for our sins. What it means is that we have to gaze upon the one whom we have pierced. This means, in our vocation as Vincentians, that we have to keep Christ at the center. We have to keep Christ as the priority, Christ as the first and foremost in our quest to remedy what ails the world. And this is what we're doing as Vincentians. But going out into the hurly-burly of the world, you can easily get confused and become overwhelmed by what you see. I remember when I arrived in Rome as a, as a newly minted seminarian, I received a very wise spiritual director and when he started hearing my troubles and my grumbles and my frustrations, and he could easily see that um, I was becoming distracted by peripheral things. And so he said to me, I want you to find the church of St. Ignatius. And when you get there, walk about halfway down the nave, and then just lay down on the floor and look up at the ceiling. Have a little meditation, and then come back and tell me what you see. Now, it was quite mortifying to go and lie down on the floor of a church in front of all the pilgrims and tourists. I suppose my spiritual director knew that I needed a bit of mortification as well. 
But as I lay there and I looked up, I saw the most magnificent fresco in Rome. It is, it must be the size of a football field, immense. And in it is everything, all the rivers of the world, all the continents of the world, all the crazy beasts and creatures from these different continents, birds and trees, and, uh, and then all the sciences and all the virtues and uh, all the disciplines. It is so full and replete with detail. And right at the center is Christ, the figure of Christ. And all around Christ, there's just this enormous, clear space. And what I realized making my meditation was this. If you keep your eyes on Christ, then this magnificent fresco in all its detail becomes harmoniously proportioned. Everything is in its place. But when you allow your eye to become distracted by this corner or that image or this beast or that virtue, it becomes a very frenetic, very complicated, very um, overwhelming fresco. Uh, Complicated and even scary to look at. But as long as you look at Christ in the middle, everything falls into place quite harmoniously. And what I'm suggesting for you is is something simple. Is that when we come together, whether it's on Thursdays or whichever night you meet, let us keep at the center, Christ, the one upon whom we keep our gaze affixed, because he is the one who will heal the afflictions of the world, not us. And when we replenish ourselves as a community and as individuals, then we go out with a treasury that vastly exceeds our own singly or corporately. Gazing upon our Lord in our prayer, in our Lectio Divina that we make with our gospel meditation each week, sharing this word with one another at our weekly meetings, as well as the personal insights that the Holy Spirit grants us, this is where we receive our blank check. This is when we receive what it is that we really dispense in our person-to-person contact with our clients. The Lord must be the one in whom we are filled up and replenished. So that we do not only give for our own, from our own meager supplies, but rather from the inexhaustible and dependable font of everything that is good. To refer to the one that we have pierced is to refer above all to the sacred heart of Jesus. Because it was through that heart, rent through with the centurion's lance, that was opened for love of the world, that we see the mercy of God. This is the icon of God's divine mercy, the love that the Lord has for us. From that pierced side, sacred scripture tells us, came forth blood and water, which is itself a miracle because dead bodies do not bleed, much less open fountains of water from their side. But the prophets foretold that from the side of the temple, from under its altar, would issue a flow of water that would flood to the east and to the west and to the south and to the north, a flood of water that would first be ankle-deep and then knee-deep and then waist-deep, but would eventually cover the whole face of the earth. And the fathers of the church saw in this immediately a prophecy of the sacrament of baptism. Since Christ is the new temple, whom destroyed in three days would be rebuilt. Because as Christ predicted, that old temple was destroyed in the year 70 AD. Not a stone left. Christ's body is the new temple. 
the new meeting place between God and man. His heart is that altar. And the only sacrifice which is truly worthy of God and the only sacrifice which is in any way efficacious for our salvation, for what ails the world. That flood which comes forth from the heart of Jesus, that water, is the opposite of the flood of Noah, which was an issuance of water over the face of the earth as a punishment to destroy a civilization undermined by sin. But this is a water that comes from the heart of Christ that brings not death, but life. Not punishment, but redemption. Not destruction, but renewal. And it is our baptism. We have been immersed into that flood from the side of Christ. This is what makes our vocation possible. Our baptism. Return to the source, to the font of your calling, which is your baptism. All the vocations in the church even in religious life and consecrated life, but certainly in Vincentian life, is a seeking to live out the implications of your baptism. Your Vincentian vocation is not something added to your life as a Christian, additional to your baptism. It is the very way in which you are unpacking or living out the consequences, the implications of your baptism. You have been given the water of the fountain of eternal life that inexhaustible stock in which we place all our hope. In this source, and not in your own hearts, in this source, you will find everything you need for your vocation. So there has to be a return to the source. Jeremiah warns that if we try something else, we will be exchanging for leaky cisterns the fountains of eternal life. And that's the water from the side of Christ. And in the blood which issued from the side of Christ, the church fathers saw the sacrament of the Eucharist. Water and blood. Baptism and the Eucharist. The two fundamental pillars on which Holy Church is built. Both of these are sourced in Christ's sacred heart for the font of love that God bears for man. And in the Eucharist, not only in receiving it, but in worshipping it and adoring it outside of Mass, in our daily visits to the Blessed Sacrament, especially in our holy hours of adoration. That is where we come face to face with the source and the nourishment that we need to enact and live out our vocations. We immerse ourselves in the Sacred Heart of Jesus, eternal fount of love and mercy, the flame of which inspires the flame of our zeal. We get the flame from that fire. That fire also heals us by cauterizing our wounds. Yes, it burns, but it's a healing burning because it burns away the dross and it extracts the ore. We are being purified. And how useful then, how necessary in fact, the sole thing necessary, that we, Vincentians, find the time, make the time every week, singly and corporately, to come together in the name of the Lord. And it would be very efficacious if we could find the time, even corporately, to worship our Lord in the Mass, as we'll do this afternoon, and in adoration in the Blessed Sacrament. I've learned a few Americanisms in my time here in the States, 
The one is this. It's called a come-to-Jesus moment. And when you say this, you you actually mean it figuratively. A kind of a fraternal intervention, or somebody needs to be brought back down to earth. Conversion, we're talking about. And I like that. And I think our St. Vincent de Paul meetings should have and do have an element of this come to Jesus, this moment of conversion. But our association as Vincentians should also have this come to Jesus moment in the literal sense of the word, where we bring to the Lord in prayer the works and the concerns that we bear as Vincentians. (coughs) And this requires great fraternal trust between you. Because when you bring your concerns, you become vulnerable. The Latin word vulnera means wound. So we become icons of the sacred heart of Jesus when we allow our woundedness to come to the meeting, to be on display in the trust of our fellow Vincentians. (coughs) There's no reason why you shouldn't bring... This is friendship, spiritual friendship. Bring your concerns, bring your struggles even if they are personal struggles, even if they are struggles with your health or whatever, the troubles of your families, any broader concerns you have about society, this is where we can ventilate them in prayer, in great confidence in the fraternal friendship and spirituality of our fellow Vincentians. This is real friendship in the Lord. And this is what the Bethany model suggests and on which I ask you to contemplate. Yesterday's gospel antiphon welcomed the proclamation of the gospel with these words. Blessed are those who have kept the word with a generous heart and who yield a harvest through perseverance. And to whom I I ask, might they be better applied than those saints of Bethany? Maybe especially that saint of whom our liturgy tomorrow makes memory, St. Martha. St. <coughs> Martha, for her attentions to our blessed Lord and to his apostles, has come to exemplify that spirit of service and hospitality for which Vincentians are so famous, and the church as a whole. Maybe that's why the Vatican guest house, where Pope Francis has chosen to make his home, is called the Casa Santa Marta, St. Martha's house. Now, in the theology of religious life, of consecrated life, Martha has come to exemplify the active apostolate by which communities of men and women have built up the kingdom of God like a veritable army of foot soldiers, serving the largest network of homes, orphanages, healthcare clinics, hospitals, primary, secondary, and tertiary education institutes the world has ever known. Without a doubt, the church has taken to heart the example of St. Martha's spirit of service. And who better to testify to this achievement than you, Vincentians? St. Martha's vocation exemplifies the outward dynamic, the centripetal force of the kingdom, of going out to the peripheries. But as we have discovered this morning, St. Martha was not an only child, Alongside her in that house at Bethany where Jesus and his apostles loved to retire, labored another sister, Mary. And it's probable that this sister Mary is Mary Magdalene, whom the Lord forgave 
when it seemed that the whole world condemned her. And if Martha uh, typifies the outward centripetal thrust of the church's work, Mary exemplifies that inward centrifugal dynamic of return to the Lord at the center. <clears throat> Whereas Martha is emblematic of the act of religious apostolate, of service, Mary symbolizes the cloister of contemplative life, that inward dynamic of service to God. Now we have, this is the, the literal meaning of the word liturgy. It means divine service. Sometimes you'll find Protestant churches don't talk about mass, they talk about services. Because we have a duty to serve our neighbor. That is the virtue of justice. But we have a prior duty to serve God, in whom we are made and live and move and have our being. And that service or that justice to God is the virtue of religion. And it comes first. <clears throat> Sometimes we think of, what, uh, of prayer and work as opposite dynamics. <clears throat> like so much else in the church, there are a lot of dichotomies. But celibacy, which I live, is not the opposite of married life except in the sense that it is the other side of the same coin. The two, married life and the celibacy of the clergy, support one another and bolster one another like two sides of the same coin. The more they lean on each other, the stronger they become. They hold each other upright and balanced so that society does not become skewed. And in the same way, the active apostolate and the contemplative apostolate, Martha and Mary, are not opposites, except in the sense that they are the two sides of the same coin, that they bolster and buttress one another, that they can lean on one another and sustain one another in an upright equilibrium that does not become skewed. And this is the case also in your vocation as a Vincentian. If you have the one without the other, both risk crumbling. Jesus says something curious to Martha when she murmurs about having to do all the active work of serving others. He says, you are anxious about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen it, it's the better part, and it won't be taken from her. Now to say that one thing is necessary is not to say that all other things are unnecessary. It is simply to point out that there is a priority of purposes. So Mary's vocation of prayer and of divine service does take priority over Martha's vocation of service to neighbor, not because the one is essential and the other is not, but because it is from the love of God that we have to derive our love of neighbor. Otherwise, what we do out there is just philanthropy, which merits nothing from God by way of reward because it is not done for love of God. We often talk about the uh, Ten Commandments and we love to depict them in Christian art as these two stone tablets and we put Roman numerals on them, one, two, three on the first and then four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten on the other which offends my sense of symmetry, my sense of artistic balance. But it's done for a reason. When Jesus is asked to sum up the whole of the law, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. 
the first three commandments. And love your neighbor as yourself, the remaining seven. He puts the one first and in the other follows. Love of neighbor has to proceed from love of God. And it is love of neighbor that verifies the prior love of God. And we, in our vocations, should do likewise. Any reflection on uh, the sisters of Bethany would be unfinished business. If we didn't also move on to consider Lazarus, whom Jesus loved, whose death is elicit, whose, on whose death is elicited from the Lord, the strongest expression in sacred scripture of our Lord's emotion. And Jesus wept, sighing. If Martha signifies love of neighbor, going out, and Mary signifies love of God, going in, Lazarus signifies the friendship with the Lord that has to ground both of these dynamics. And herein lies the fuller theology. It is because God has made himself our neighbor in Christ that we manifest our love of God in our love of neighbor. Christ is that neighbor. He is the poor one, the one afflicted with our sins. That's why St. James chastises those who think that you can live by faith alone. You, he says, show me your faith without works, and I, by my works, will show you your faith in action. But, just the, but those who also try to live by works alone are equally foolish. So now I encourage you for this phase leading into lunch and after lunch. It's a longer pause now because we need the time to go into the deepest part of your recollection for this retreat, to enter into the complete, cool stillness of soul needed for contemplation. Rest in the Lord. It's in Him and in this rest that you will find the yeast of the Holy Spirit start to undertake that process of fermentation in the juicy extracts from this morning's press. And now you form the wine for the drinking. I have to leave you uh, in a minute because uh, I'm needed uh, to hear confessions in the cathedral, but I want to encourage you to keep silence. Keep silence between now, if you can, and our conference at 2 p.m. Let nothing disturb you. Even a table, try and keep silence. I think they've got a, a CD player in the corner. If you push the power switch and the play, you, maybe it will uh, not uh, keep you from being tempted to talk to one another. Let nothing disturb now the most important business of this retreat, your inner quiet, your recollection with the Lord. Now, contemplation is no longer <clears throat> an intellectual exercise. It's a spiritual exercise. It's an attention on the Lord which moves beyond symbols, images, words, ideas, and metaphors. It's not so much a talking to the Lord, but a resting with the Lord, a waiting for the Lord. You do have to keep an attention on him, but it's like that tension in the fishing line when the fisherman has a fish at the other end on the hook. They're at a considerable distance from one another. They're certainly not talking to each other, but they are intimately aware of one another They're because of the tension in the wire. And this is the sort of attention I encourage you to keep during your time of contemplation. Be the fish on the hook at the end of the great fisherman's line. <coughs> I'll meet you again here at uh, 2 p.m. And uh, it's my hope 
maybe we can meet at 2 p.m. rather in the refectory. It's my hope to have a more lively uh, gathering at 2 p.m., a little bit more interactive. Uh, this is when we are going to drink the wine that you've been uh, fermenting. And uh, we'll be able to share. And hopefully, if we have any lay spiritual advisors, we can have some input for the final phase of uh, our retreat, which is the formulation of resolutions for going forward. Uh, May joy and peace, amendment of life, room for true penitence, the grace and comfort of the Holy Spirit, and steadfastness uh, in good works be granted us by the Almighty and merciful Lord. Amen.